Well, good morning, church. Um, if you've got your Bibles, I invite you to turn in, uh, in them to that text in Matthew 5. We're just going to walk through that um, pretty quickly this morning because I want to land a little bit on the salt and light concept um, as, as we are a church in a dying and decaying world. Um, but once you've found that passage in Matthew 5, if you flip down a few pages to 1 Peter chapter 2, um, I'm going to frame the message um, in, in Peter's words to a church in exile. Well, 2020 uh, has been a bit of a revealing year, hadn't it? Uh, it has laid bare, I think, our vulnerabilities um, as both a nation and as humans. It's reminded us of, uh, reminded us of our mortality, of our frailty. Um, it's exposed divisions that have existed, albeit political or racial. It's demonstrated that uh, despite the notions of how advanced we are in our world, we can be unraveled by enemies both unseen and seen. I think we're seeing a prime example of what it looks like in Psalm 2 when the psalmist says, the nations rage, they shake their fists at God. I think this is what it looks like. Now, but for those of you who understand the nature of man, uh, th- this is to be expected, right? Because a world that has chosen sin, it's broken and it's going to fall apart. We've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We worship the created things over the creator. And the consequences, Paul tells us, is that we are given over then to a depraved mind, meaning that the people who do this, they're unable to even see good, to recognize good, to respond to goodness. And so when you ask yourself, as I have many times in the last year, how did we get to this point that we can't even delineate male from female or we, we celebrate sexual deviance as if it's a norm, we tolerate the killing of the unborn, you have to remind yourself, this is the consequence for sin. Paul tells us in Romans 1 that the judgment for sin is more sin, and it begins to pile up in the world, and eventually it will strangle a culture. And I think we're beginning to see this play out in America and in many places in the West. But as a history major, this doesn't really surprise me, uh, because this is the nature of what worldly kingdoms do. They rise and they fall. They never last. But what did surprise me in 2020 was watching how so many Christians responded to these types of trials, even in my own church at LifePoint. Um, I was shocked to see the lack of biblical perspective in the life of the church. I watched fear, division, anger, despair, hopelessness. I watched it all slowly trickle through the pews over the last year. And I began to realize, you know what? We in the West, even solid believing, Bible-believing churches, in many ways we've lost our bearings. We've taken our eyes off of Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. We're going to look around at the waves and the turmoil around us. We have forgotten who we are as God's redeemed and what he has called us to do, even in the chaos. And I think I've used this analogy before here, but I think it's a, it's, I think it's a good one. Um, when the full court press comes in basketball, the goal is to speed you up and to get you to forget fundamentals so that you throw the ball away, so that you get nervous. And what a coach does is he has to call timeout, he brings his team over, and he says, stop. We have worked on this. You guys know what to do. Remember practice. Remember what's on your jersey. Remember who you are. Take a deep breath, and let's go back out there and execute. And that's really what Sunday mornings are for the church. We get sped up all week long. We start looking around. We wonder, we're anxious for a bunch of things. And then we come together on Sunday morning. We sit under the preaching of the word. We feast on the words that God has given us. We catch our breath. 
And then Grant gives those great words at the end of the service. He says, go be the church. In other words, go back out there. Remember your fundamentals. Take a deep breath. You guys have Christ as your king. And so we go forth in confidence. Now, I want to frame today's message with this text from 1 Peter. And uh, Peter is writing to a people who are under severe persecution. Their world is beginning to fall apart simply because they have chosen Christ. And Peter doesn't address external factors for them. He doesn't talk about political signs. He doesn't talk about Supreme Court justices. He simply um, reminds them of who they are in Christ. He doesn't even bemoan or denigrate the political powers that be. And so let's look at what he writes. If you've got your Bible, and I didn't put it up on the screen because this is kind of a late edition. If you don't have your Bibles, just listen to how striking these admonitions are. Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, and here's the purpose, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now, there's a lot there, but these are instructions that are given to a people facing a tremendous amount of persecution. And notice that Peter doesn't even address these external threats. He says that you wage war against the things that are dangerous to your soul, namely the passions of the flesh. So he doesn't even address these things. He says, no, we look inwardly, and this is the primary battle that we fight. As far as the external enemies go, he says that we silence them by doing good so that they will see your good conduct and then they will glorify God who is in heaven because he sees it. Even the emperor we are to give honor to and he decrees their persecution. And so all of this has been rooted in truth of remembering who we were. We were chosen. We were called out of bondage. We were given an identity and we were given a, we are now a people and we have a purpose and that is to proclaim the excellencies of the one who has done this work in our lives. We are here on this earth and we are here in this country, but this is not our home. But all of our actions while here need to point to that eternal king, to that forever king, to that land that we are longing to go to. And as a holy nation, as the church of Christ, we need to reflect then on the customs and the conduct of that future world so that people know we are exiles here. We are sojourners. We don't belong. We are foreigners. Now that's the difficulty, isn't it? Being in this world, but not being of it to having a strange character that stands out to the people around us, but we still engage with the people in our proximity. And I think Matthew 5 gives us a pretty good kind of succinct analysis of what this character should look like as we engage with the world. 
Now, if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, you know that it is absolutely incredible in its admonitions. They are unkeepable without the Spirit's work in our lives. But it's important to note that they are not a list of ethical commands that are designed to make us Christians. Rather, it's an explanation of what the Christian should look like. It's not a code of ethics, but it's more like teaching. This is what the fruit of the Spirit looks like in your lives as it plays itself out in your actions. This is if Jesus is saying, because you are who you are, this is now how you should live. And so the first 12 verses contain what we call the Beatitudes. They're statements of blessedness and happiness that should mark the life of the Christian. And I'm going to move through these relatively quickly because I just want you to see the pattern as a whole. But it begins by blessing those who are poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit means that you have this posture of neediness, that you recognize your inner poverty, that you see your weakness when it comes to anything that you could offer to God. And Jesus is saying any attempt to receive the kingdom in your own strength is proof that you have not understood it at all. It's an empty humility with open hands that asks to receive the kingdom rather than to take the kingdom. And so follow the flow of these verses. Because the person who understands their lack, their neediness, what's their response? They mourn over it. And in mourning over these things, we find comfort. The result then is this meekness that inherits the world rather than seeking to take it. When you know that you are weak, when you know that there is a void, there is a humility, and you come to the table with empty hands, there's a gracious meekness then that is there because we remember who we are. And as such, we're quick to defer to other people. We're quick to treat them with kindness because we remember who we are before Christ acted in our lives. Now think about how aversive those statements are to a modern world, a world which celebrates your independence, celebrates your strength, celebrates stability, which places such an emphasis on self-reliance, self-confidence, self-expression, a world that is enamored with the term selfie. My grandpa baffles at the fact that people just walk around taking pictures of themselves all the time. He says, how did we, you used to take pictures of creation and other people, and now you put yourself in front of the picture. He said, it's the weirdest thing. But from day one in kindergarten, aren't we told, believe in yourself, be true to yourself, or or my favorite statement, you just do you. The Bible says, no, 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 the opposite. God is trying to kill you and redeem you and make you a new creation. He's not trying to polish you up. He's trying, in a sense, to replace you with another little Jesus walking around on earth. But we worship self in this culture. Interestingly, there are 500 English words that have the prefix self in front of them. Think about that, 500 words. But what does Paul tell us? We don't preach ourselves. We preach Christ crucified. We don't exalt self. Paul says we die to self. That is at the heart of, what those, uh, of those who are poor in spirit and are mourning over this. There is a meekness then that is evident in their life. You see, where our world victimizes and in some cases even celebrates sin, Jesus blesses those who mourn over it because they understand it is an offense to their creator. Where the world prizes aggressiveness, Jesus blesses the unassuming and the meek and the kind. And this meekness then leads to this craving after righteousness that is satisfied only in Christ. And so I love the flow here because it moves from deficiency to fullness, right? We are filled with the righteousness of Christ. We come empty and we are filled. 
And so Jesus is offering satisfaction that money, fame, power, they cannot provide. Where our world entices us to pursue pleasure at every turn, Jesus says the ultimate pleasure is found in being satisfied with the righteousness of Christ. If you want to be filled, you will thirst and hunger for the righteousness of Jesus. And then look at verse 7. When we recognize all that we have been given in Jesus, we are quick to extend mercy. We're quick to extend mercy because mercy has been extended to us. Verse 8, we long to have pure hearts because we want to see God himself. We want to behold the beauty of Jesus Christ. You want to see God come with a pure heart that's not cluttered with the cares of this world, one that mourns sin, one that extends mercy, one that desires righteousness. That gives us a vision of God. Then it is a heart that not only wants peace, but is actually making peace in verse 9. And this doesn't mean there's no conflict. Sometimes making peace involves fighting a battle. Sometimes it means that you have to contend Genuine peace is often made because an enemy has been subdued. And making peace doesn't mean that we turn a blind eye to injustice or or immorality just to keep from offending anyone. Making peace can be really offensive work. And then in verse 10, we're blessed when we are persecuted for righteousness sake. And when you read it, you go, all of these things sound really good. So why is persecution coming? It doesn't make sense. Well, the reason it comes is because you don't belong. It is unfair. But God is not asking us to do anything that he did not ask himself to do. He played by the rules. And when we are ridiculed, it's because we look funny. It's because we're in a foreign land. We dress funny. We talk different. We have accents that that are pointing to another home. We smell funny. This is not our home. We have to be distinctive as believers. We cannot blend in. Pick back up in verse 11. Jesus goes on to say, blessed, another way of saying happy. Happy are you, and this is why it's so, it just doesn't make sense in our minds. Happy are you when you are reviled and slandered falsely for Christ. Now, how can we be happy in this? It's because we're following in the footsteps of Jesus who endured the same thing. It's God's way of saying, You know what? It's a pat on the back. And they're making fun of you. They're reviling you because you look just like my son, which is the whole goal of redemption. We want to look like Jesus. Everything about us now stands in defiance of the world. Friends, the first step to countercultural living is that we have to have countercultural character that responds differently. We desire things differently. We mourn over different things. We relate to other people differently. It is a supernatural change of nature that invites suffering because we stand out and we remind people of the eternal king who they shake their fists at and who they so much hate. You see, this character is so foreign to those around us that they despise us for it. But this should not surprise us. Look at what Jesus told the disciples in John 15, 18 through 19. If the world hates you, Know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You see, submission to Christ immediately makes you an enemy of this world. 
but it doesn't remove you from it. In fact, in the high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus, I like what he says. He says, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep my disciples from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. Sanctify them in truth. In other words, make them holy in truth. Make them distinctive. Your word is truth. As I sent them into the world, so I have sent, as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So Jesus basically says, Lord, don't take them out, but send them out holy and distinctive and rooted in my word as they reflect me. And so as we go into the world for the next six days until you guys gather again, we need to act differently. Everything we do has to point to another world. And the result of this, if you follow the sermon, it begins to say, okay, so what's the result? What do we look like then? We know what the character is, but what is the conduct, so to speak? And he says, you are salt and you are light. One exposes things and the other preserves things, but neither of these things ever assimilate or blend in to their surroundings. Now, you think of the responsibility that is placed upon the church here. We are called to expose by the way we live and what we talk about, and we are called to preserve the world. Now, my question for this is, in a culture that seems to be dark and rotting, do we need to place some of the blame at our own feet here? Right? It's easy to say them, but we have a role to preserve And if the world continues to move into a festering rot, then maybe we as the church need to take a little look inside and say, have we not preserved in a way that we are called to preserve? Because we are supposed to be salt in a culture that is dying. We are to be light in a world that is growing darker. And maybe we've done our jobs poorly. When Jesus tells us that we are to be salt The idea is is that we have to be worked into the meat, but we never become the meat itself. But in order to have an impact, we have to be present in it. We cannot just withdraw and watch the world burn. The responsibility is to go and to call people to repentance. And you do that, and you will be persecuted, and you will be slandered. And I don't know, you know, they've been saying that persecution's coming to the American church for a long time. It looks closer now than I ever remember it in my life. But I'm willing to bet if you go out and you share the gospel with boldness and you take a stand for biblical masculinity and femininity and biblical sexuality and you begin to present Christ as king, slander will come your way. I promise it will come your way. The problem is, is that we've just not been bold enough as a church. We've tried so hard to assimilate into the culture rather than to preserve the culture by taking the necessary and proper stance. And where we have taken the stance, it's not been matched with our character, right? We stand in an angry fashion rather than in the meek fashion that God has called us to before he even tells us what our jobs are as salt and light. Now, I believe that we find ourselves in a in a predicament here, in a rotting culture, predominantly because God has rested too inconsequentially upon the church. We keep his truth hidden and distant. We present his grace as ordinary and universal. His judgment is weak and benign. He is distant. His gospel is too ordinary. It is too easy. It doesn't capture our imaginations anymore. So why would it capture theirs? And our Christ is far too common and far too accommodating. As Dorothy Sayers says, we have efficiently paired the claws of the Lion of Judah 
and made him meek and mild and recommended him as a fitting house cat for pious old ladies. We've, we've taken the claws off of Christ. Jesus is to be feared and worshiped and adored. And we kind of walk around and say, here's this little meek Jesus. Right? Jesus is love. And that's a true statement. Absolutely 100%. But sometimes being like Jesus means flipping over tables and chasing people with whips. I'm not saying we should do that as a church. My point is, is that Jesus was strong. And there was an edginess, so to speak, with Jesus. The things that he said were so countercultural, which is why there was pressure on him from every single front. Maybe we have spent too, too much time as a church. And you know what I'm saying, the church. I'm not talking about Franklin City. I'm not necessarily talking about LifePoint. I'm talking about the, the church kind of spread out in the West, so to speak. But maybe we have tried to earn the favor of the world by rounding off the edges of the gospel and trying to mirror the world. Why? Why do you want to mirror the world? It's dying, and it hates you to begin with. The world does not need more of the world. That's the one thing that the world does not need more of. You cannot have both worlds. Either we build a kingdom that is eternal and lasts, or we build one that is going to be wiped away and burned up. But we swear allegiances to one or the other. Now, make, make no mistake about this. The world wants you to compromise, and they will pretend that they are your friend. The minute you turn your back, they will slit your throat because it hates you. Because everything you do as a follower of Christ testifies that its deeds are evil. We should have very little in common with the world. And, it, and if the world's affirming us, there should be something wrong. It should at least allow us to do some questioning. Well, look at this text in 2 Corinthians, and I think this is a very convicting text for me. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 through 10, and it's a little bit long, but look at what Paul's saying here. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacles in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, and here's where it gets tough, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Whew. And here are the tools. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And I love that because it's not sequential. We're not sorrowful, then we rejoice. We are sorrowful and rejoice, and we hold these things in tension. You ever been in a funeral of a godly person who died, and you're, you're telling stories about him, and you're, you're weeping over death, but you're laughing at the life and, and the jokes and the stories. I did that at my mom's funeral. I remember feeling like a schizophrenic because I was crying and laughing at the same time. There was this odd depth of grief, and yet this odd height of, of, of joy. At the same time, and this is what Paul's saying, that we in this world, there is joy, and yet there is sorrow as we look around and we see the world rotting. He goes on and he says, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Does that sound like Paul has embraced the world? Beatings, prison, slander? Of course not. 
But look at the weapons he uses in his battle. Purity, patience, kindness, and love. And as a result, they were treated as imposters. They didn't belong. Well, he goes on a few verses later to call the Corinthians to join him in this distinction. And look at what he writes. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And friends, I understand the temptation to give in to this world. I, I really do. I am so tempted with the allure of the world. I love affirmation. I love comfort. I like the, the shiny things of this world. And I can't imagine that there weren't moments when Paul, in the midst of a beating, he was thinking, if I just compromise, this can all be over. The struggle can all be done if I'll just compromise on this one point. I'm wired to love the things of the world. And if I'm not careful, I start to fit in. And then I start to think this is my home and I stop longing for my other home. I forget that I am at war here. I forget that all around me, people are dying on a daily basis and they're going to hell with no hope as they stand before God. I get comfortable here. And grace begins to mean nothing to me because I fail to see my daily need for it. And this is why time in God's word is so vital. A verse struck me this week, Psalm 119.54. It says, your statutes are my song in the house of my pilgrimage. In other words, God's word is what we sing while we're here. This is the house of our pilgrimage. But that song, it's, a, it's, a, it's the anthem from home. It sustains us. And I've once heard that the Bible, just, it's just letters from home. When I read it, I taste the words. My appetite is reminding me again that there's a wedding feast that is coming. I remember being in college and you're away from home and you just wanted to go home and have a home-cooked meal. All right, they try at the dining hall. You know, the mashed potatoes, they're chalky. They're just not good. They're just a shadow. You're like, man, I just want to go home and eat some of mom's cooking. And this is what scripture is for us. It's a reminder. Here's just a morsel of what you will feast on when we're in the presence of God eternally. Friends, we are on a pilgrimage, and in some ways I think we've just stopped struggling altogether. Now, Paul understood this battle. He realized when he finishes up, and, you know, earlier when, he, when he's writing in 2 Corinthians, and he says, these are light and momentary afflictions Keeps them in perspective. They're achieving for us an eternal weight of glory. These things are nothing in comparison to what is coming. Have you ever wondered how in our culture, with so many churches, I mean, I don't know how many churches you pass on the way here, how have we gotten ourselves to where we are in American culture? It's because I think we've lost our identity. We're failing to do our jobs well. I think there's too much compromise in the pulpits and in the pews. And is it fair to place blame on the fact that we're not preserving the culture around us because we've just lost our saltiness? We've allied ourselves with a world that hates our Lord. Is a battle even being waged? Are we so committed to being on the right side of history 
that we just give in. There's so few Christians who are daily feasting on God's word and then we wonder why we're too malnourished to even go do fighting. We don't even know why a battle is being waged to begin with. Can't we all just get along? We know that many Christians don't attend corporate worship and place themselves under the preaching of the word and then we wonder why there's so many theological views are, uh, are antithetical to Christianity. How many of our lives are indistinguishable from the surrounding culture in our ethics, in our Netflix, in what we watch and what we listen to? We go around wanting likes on Facebook more than a well-done, good and faithful servant from our eternal king. We desire affirmation from a world that is rotting rather than accolades from God himself. Now is not the time for cowardly Christians, friends, especially young people. We need strong men and women of conviction. Many young people, and I work with college kids, and I've told them this to their face. I said, many of you are really quick to go downtown and hold up a sign and ostracize half the population, but you will never raise the banner of Christ for fear of ostracizing yourself. I'm not saying that we shouldn't go down and be involved in these things, uh, but my point is, is that Christ is our banner. Look, friends, if we take our cues from the world, we are going to rot right along with them. The culture will continue to fall into darkness, and it will not matter who we elect, how angrily we tweet, or what social changes we clamor for. If the church ceases to retain her identity, then the foundations are going to continue to crumble. And so this is the timeout. Sunday mornings are the timeouts where we huddle up. It's where we remind ourselves we have been bought with a price. We have been called out. You have a different job now. You are Christ, and he is mine. And the expectations are high. I had a friend um, in college. His name was Feroz Jalawala. That was a great name. He was from Pakistan. And uh, he had not been home in, I think, 20 years. But he had to go to the embassy for, for some reason. And I remember him coming back, and he was like, Nate, it was like going home. I said, Froze, what are you talking about? He said, I walked into the embassy, and it looked like Pakistan. It smelled like Pakistan. It was the same food. It was the same artwork. It was the same couch. We ate the same. The customs were the same. And he said, but I never left America. I'm telling you, that's what Sunday mornings are. They're a visit to the embassy. We get to go and partake in communion, which is a picture of the food that we will have eternally as we partake in Christ. It's, just, it's pointing to this marriage supper of the Lamb, to a home-cooked meal that we will never, ever have to long for again one day. It smells like this is what we do. Right? We see other believers. We sing together. We hear the word proclaimed together. We experience Christ together. This is, so to speak, an embassy. We gather. This is a picture of heaven. Hopefully, it's that enjoyable to you that you then leave and go, I got a taste. Right? I know what home is like. It, it, it ignited my imagination once again for my next home, for the one that I've been created for. Church, now is not the time for cowardice. Far too long, we have become fearful of the world, and we've got to stop. We adapt our worship styles to make it more palatable to the pagans than we do to make it beneficial for believers. In many congregations, we've adopted a, a sexual worldly ethic to be loving rather than a biblical one to be godly. We have sought to love the world by trying to be too much like them. Understand this again. The world does not like you. It doesn't like me so long as I reflect Christ. They shake their fists. They do not want to bend a knee before him. They are rebels in this world. We 
are rebels in this world because we are in a foreign land. Now, as we close, let me draw out two practical and courageous things that the church has to do if we want to regain our saltiness. This is the practical side of this. The church is going to have to learn to speak boldly about sin in a generation where sin has all but disappeared. Without an understanding of sin, there is no gospel. Sin is not an inconvenience. It is an offense against a holy God. And yet sin has become a taboo word. You you can't throw it out anymore because we have drunk the Kool-Aid that says that genuine love means to affirm everyone and everything. Church, genuine and godly love often means presenting hard truth. Parents, would you ever affirm your three-year-old if you saw him playing in the street and you said, you need to come in? And he said, dad, don't limit me. I'm identifying as a pothole today. You would would be a terrible parent. You would run out and you would grab them and you would bring them back in. And you would, even if they screamed at you and said, I hate you, I hate you. Why are you so judgmental? We'd say, son, I love you too much. It's too dangerous. Now, there's a fine line here between the posture we take when we speak about sin and how we shake fists sometimes at sins. And we've got to be careful there. That's why the Beatitudes start with these character traits before it moves into the way we engage with the culture. The second thing that the church must do is that we have to become more authentic in our own moral convictions. In other words, we need to practice what we preach because far too often we display how inconsequential the gospel is in our, in our own lives. It rarely excites us anymore. It certainly doesn't impact our behavior many times. And we live our lives like practical atheists, right? We talk about the omnipresence of God, but when we're sitting there in front of a computer screen or we're turning on Netflix, we'd be more embarrassed to have our grandma sitting next to us than the, than the holy God of the universe who is with us at all times. Now, I'm making a large generalization about the church here. I'll, I confess that to you. But if the gospel means so little to those who profess to be Christians, then why do we expect it to be so significant to those who don't? Because it's one thing to mentally understand the concepts of deliverance and another thing to see it worked out with conviction and reality in people's lives. I think that's what transforms lives when they see it and they see the change and they say, man, I knew Gary before he knew Christ. What happened? And Gary says, man, I've been given a new heart. Let me tell you about this new king that I took a knee before. He fills me with his righteousness. And as such, man, I want to be loving. I want to extend mercy, but I have to speak truth as well. I firmly believe that the gospel burns brightest when truth is not just proclaimed, but lives are actually seen to be transformed. When the moral splendor of the church is gone and she looks like the world, she fails to reflect the majesty of the husband who has redeemed her. And when we do that, we fail to let her beauty draw people to Christ and we are left to use gadgets and tricks and marketing ploys rather than the purity and power of the gospel. It's like a beautiful woman who can stand alone in her beauty. But she doesn't quite believe it. And so she covers herself with too much makeup. She actually becomes tacky. You say, no, there's so much beauty there. Just let it stand out. I just don't trust it. Do you trust what God tells us in his word that the way that we go about in the gospel is we look like Christ and we proclaim the words of Christ even if the world is going to mock us? We cannot look like the world and have our message mean anything to it. And until we recover a desire for holy, distinctive living, there will be little magnification of the holiness of God. And without the realization of this holiness, the gospel is trivialized into a therapeutic fix rather than the life-giving reality that it is. When we simply add the gospel to our lives rather than build our lives on the gospel, 
God becomes a product to be sold. Faith is nothing more than a recreational hobby, and church is just a networking tool for people with some like-minded ideas. And so the question for us is this. Is Franklin City ready? Is Franklin City ready? The full court press is coming, right? I mean, what happened in America for the last 250 years is the anomaly for the church. That's not the norm, right? The pressure is going to come. Are we preparing our young people for this? Do we know our fundamentals? Do we know our jobs? Do we know whose name we wear on our jersey? Will we be faithful in that moment to contend for the faith? in a way that offers the world a meaningful alternative to their purposeless lives? Will we be brilliant light in an abyss of darkness? Will we be a preservative that staves off rot? Are our feet so firmly planted in the other world that we are bearing fruit here that draws people to say, where did you get this apple? I need to know where this fruit came from. And I think we're just too worldly, frankly. Will we be able to respond with conviction and courage when all the pressure comes? Do we have the backbone to become relevant by becoming biblical? Are we willing to break with cultural habits of the time and stand alone as the heat intensifies? As believers, we will never, ever, ever be on the right side of history, but we will be on the right side of eternity, and I'll take that every single time. You'll be hated, you'll be mocked, you'll be vilified, but to some, and here's the hope in the message, you will become the instrument of salvation for a lost soul, Look at what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. I love that. Always leads us. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. Look look at those universal terms. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. You will stink if you live out your life through the world, to the other, and yet to those who notice, to those who have been called, to those who recognize Jesus Christ, to those who take a knee before him, you will be the fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? It's a rhetorical question. For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. I love it. These things will happen because we speak in Christ. Not because we have figured out how to mold our message. There is a boldness, and he falls back on the promises. We will be led in in triumphal procession. The the fragrance of the knowledge of God will go everywhere, but it will happen because we speak in Christ. And to those who are being saved, we will be a life-giving aroma. And to those who are perishing, we will be the stench of death. That is the glorious offense of the cross. It's an offensive freedom that reminds us that we're not the center of the universe. It's an offensive truth that says we are sinners, who have been saved by grace. It's the offensive joy that displays the glorious grace of God in the face of Christ who loved us and gave himself for us, but he rose in victory. It's to stand beneath the cross, it's to stand at the place where where the holiness of God meets his glorious kindness. That's where it burns brightest as we're laid bare in all of our frailty. As Blaise Pascal said, the incarnation and the cross show man the greatness of his wretchedness through the greatness of the remedy. That is required. Those can only be beautiful words to those who embrace Christ. Other words, they smell of death. As we close, let me encourage you with this. Jesus says in Matthew 16 that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. I think we read this wrongly. We always see ourselves inside the city with the gates protecting us as the world encloses around us. But that's not what it says. 
the gates of hell don't prevail against the offensive onslaught of the church. We, we don't have to play defense all the time. Go forth with the weapons of the gospel, right? The sword of the spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. We go forth. The gates of hell don't win, but stop playing the victim and putting ourselves inside and throwing up our hands and saying, woe is me. Jesus is saying, of course, woe is you. That's why I saved you. Now go forth in power. But we are a timid group and we need to reclaim the boldness because we don't serve the idea of a risen Lord. We serve an actual risen Lord, king of the universe, almighty, all-powerful, directs history, redeems people, and will reign eternally. That's an awful good representation to have. But we walk around like this, woe is me. Oh, the nation's falling apart. Look, I love this country as much as anybody. And I will gladly lay down my life for this nation should I be called to do that. But there are many times where I have to die to this nation, not just for it, because I can get so caught up in the anger and put signs in my yard and shake my fists. And, and, and you know what? This is where I was humbling this week. To sit down, I, I had to pray for political leaders that I just, I don't like. And I had to say, Lord, these are human beings. These are somebody's dad, somebody's mom. Soften my heart, right? I'm only here temporarily anyway. Give me a greater longing for that kingdom than for this one. This one's passing away. We don't need to storm Capitol buildings. We storm the gates of hell. We don't riot in the streets. We kneel in the courts of our king, and we don't place our hopes in elections because we rest in the rule of our eternal king who is immune to impeachment to revolution, or to invasion. We have to think bigger, friends, and let every hill that we choose to die on be a hill that points to the hill of Calvary. And let every mountainside that we want to contend for be a mountain that points to Mount Zion. Look, it may look bleak now, but our king is coming back. And as Paul writes in Romans 13, the time has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Go forth in his power. Take heart, friends. Christ wins. And with him, we too inherit the world. May we never compromise. May we never retreat. May we never lose heart. The road is hard. It was never said to be anything other than that. So when Grant closes today, Wraps it up, and, he, and I, uh, I kind of steal this phrase from him. And he always says, go be the church. Do you know what that means? Right? That's not a pithy little saying to wrap up for a pastor. That is a charge. And all he is doing is echoing what his greater commander told him. Go be the church. Go be bold. Go be salt. Go be light. Go take hope to a world that is dying. So shine brightly this week, friends, and stay salty. Stay salty. Sometimes the salt burns a little bit, but that's our calling. Let me pray.